Hey there, it's Freddie Cruz, and this is a podcast about the stories of the businesses, the places, and individuals that make the greater Houston area and the world great. Today, we cruise to the southwest side of town to one of the greatest bookstores in the world, Murder by the Book, where you will hear my conversation with legendary storyteller Terry Hayes. You'll know him as the guy who wrote Mad Max 2 and 3, as well as I Am Pilgrim. Terry's new novel is The Year of the Locust, and it took him a whopping 10 years to complete it. During this conversation, we talk about the personal experiences that shaped his commitment to writing. He emphasizes the importance of not being afraid and finding dignity in the face of challenges. Terry's life took an unfortunate turn for the worse when, in a short period of time, he lost his brother to cancer, his father to an unforeseen illness, and his mother, who he says may have died of a broken heart. Yet he continued to write as a tribute to those who shared his dream of being an author. At 700 pages, The Year of the Locust is a monster of a book, and it's on sale now. Special thanks to Murder by the Book for allowing me to crash their party for this episode. Please be sure to check them out at murderbooks.com. And a quick heads up that there were some technical issues with Terry's mic, and I made as many adjustments on the back end as I could. You're also going to hear a phone go off a couple of times. This kind of stuff happens in a live setting. At the end of the day, this is a powerful conversation for those who love thrillers and those who wish to learn from the giants whose shoulders we stand on. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did putting it together for you, please share with your friends and family and subscribe to the show from my website, cruisethroughhtx.com. This ensures we continue to score high-profile guests like Terry. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ed Sheeran. This is Bruno Mars. Hey, it's Katy Perry. This is your man Flo Rida with Freddie Cruz. This is AJ Mitchell with Freddie Cruz. Freddie Cruz. Freddie Cruz. Let you go pick Mr. 305 and you already know what it is. My name is Freddie and it's time to cruise through HTX. I want to begin, Terry, with one million words written. You sent to your editor 300,000 and from there, 75,000 words chopped. Why? <laughs> yeah, yeah, good question. I don't know. Um, yeah, uh, the, uh, actually, in, in Locus, the, the finished work is 270,000 words. Down the bottom of my Word document, you know, tells you how many words you've written. I wrote a million and eighty. So I chucked away 800,000 words, um, which is a lot of words. Um, you know, there's some people... On social media, I'm not on any social media, but my kids report to me as sort of saying, oh, well, you know, what's he been doing for 10 years? And, uh, you know, what's wrong with him and all of these things? Well, there's a number of reasons which we can go into, but um, I wasn't sitting around, you know, drinking beer, playing Skittles. Um, I was I was working. And, uh, you know, it, it's a great privilege to be able to write, Um and have it published. You know, Truman Capote said a really interesting thing. He said, if God gives you some talent, he also gives you a whip that you can use on yourself. And I know what he meant. There's, there's a demand on you, I believe, to, to do it as well as you can. And if you're not doing that, then why are you bothering? I wanted to do something that, uh, you know, I was really proud of. I wanted to stretch as far as I could and do the best job possible. So I write a paragraph 
and I think it's good. And then I write some more paragraphs and I go to bed and then I get up in the morning and I read it through and I think, no, that's not good enough. It's not. You can do better. So I chuck those paragraphs out. I go back to the one paragraph that was good and then I build it up brick at a time, brick at a time until I get a lot of words that I think are a story reasonably well told. And um, somebody said, according to my kids, that I'd broken trust with the readership by taking so long. What a stupid thing to say. I mean, really. Seems quite the opposite, though. Yeah, exactly. I would have broken trust by not caring. And that's my problem. I care. Mm. You know, the, the people I admire, Hemingway and Tolstoy and... I don't have their talents. I just got to work a lot harder to make it, make it sing, you know, or try to. So, yeah, it was a lot of words, a lot of things thrown away. But you know, it's a journey. I went on a journey. Thank God I did. What is the likelihood of any of the edited work ever getting turned into something? Whether it's graphic novel, um, spin-off series, a spin-off short story, novella something i don't know i i really don't know i mean i don't plan things like that I, mm. I i don't even i don't even contemplate a lot of things like that with pilgrim and now with locust i i i've been contracted to write pilgrim 2 and that's my next book and i'm sick to death of terrorists <laughs> no more terrorists no, no i've got a great setting for it i'm really excited by it I'm sitting on the plane coming down here. I was in Charlotte and I'm sitting on the plane and I don't like flying very much and I sure don't like most of the people I have to fly with. I don't know why. I, I just don't. I think they've got too much luggage. <laughs> Some of them drink a fair bit. The guys sitting just over me were getting really loaded and I thought, you know. So I'm sitting there thinking, calm down, calm down. I came up with a great idea for Pilgrim 2, a really great idea. The best thing about it was I wrote it for Locust, but it was part of the 800,000 that didn't make it. I was so happy. I thought, go home and I'm going to be able to find those chapters. I know how to search the document. I'll find those chapters. I'm not at square one anymore. I'm, I've got a few hundred words that well, I think were pretty well written <clears throat> when I read them through. Of course, I'll be crap and I'll have to throw them away. But nevertheless, I'm encouraged to go to the next step. So I just think up these situations and then I think up the character and then I live with them. And I think, well, what, are we, what would happen if? What about this? Why did he do this? How do we kill this person in a, in a totally unseen way how can i make this person die so that the readers are saying well i've never never read that before uh, i will not forget that for a long time so it, it's it's just the process that i don't understand and believe me any writer that tells you they understand that the process is not being honest it's interesting when you hear of an author that's taken more than just a couple of years to finish a book in your case, 10. Um, what is that like when you, when you tell somebody, because when you, when you tell somebody, oh yeah, it took 10 years to finish this. And they're like, well, what the hell were you doing? Uh, so was it as 
I hate to say as easy as there's nothing easy about writing and creating story and, and creating these fictions, right? What, um, what was that process like, you know, because you're working, you got day job, you got family, you got other, uh, things that you've got to do. Were you sitting for 30 minutes, uh, 30 minutes a day, an hour a day, or you're forcing yourself to write? George Santayana, a philosopher, very wise man. He said to understand is to forgive. And, uh, People don't understand, unfortunately. Yeah, I wrote I Am Pilgrim, and uh, I'm very proud of it. Uh, I think it's a, it's a pretty good book. Well, that's okay. It's probably for me. Um, We're not home. And so, but to understand is, in order to understand, you have to know, I was a migrant child. I was uh, five when I went to Australia. We'd left a small town in the south of England, very bucolic, you know, green fields, cows, poverty. And we went to Australia and there was just mum, dad, my brother and myself. And we had no family there. There were no grandparents that I grew up with, with no aunts and uncles, no cousins, nothing. And the family could not afford to go back to England. Um, we had to make it work in Australia. My dad worked very, very hard. My mother, unfortunately, was not a psychologically very well person. And uh, I found moving to Australia very disorienting, very alienating. Uh, Australia is the same geographic size of the continental, as continental United States. And when we landed, there were 7 million people. So you can imagine America with 7 million people. There were a lot of, a lot of empty space. And um, it was difficult, very difficult, and particularly difficult because of mum. And uh, I took refuge in, in reading. So I started to escape into stories. So I read everything I could find. And, you know, you're eight, nine years old, however old by that stage, and you go to the bookstore, you go to the library, you see thousands of books. So, of course, I figured, well, it can't be that hard, can it? I mean, look at all these people that have done it. I mean, it's not like there's four books in the world and uh, there's only four people that have ever done it. I mean, there's millions of people that have done it. So I figured I'd be a writer and that. So to this day, I don't... A lot of books I've read, I don't really know how they ended because I was always reinventing the ending to make it either better or happier. Okay, now that's cool. Well, yeah, you know. So, <laughs> so you know, I became a journalist. I... But I was always going to be a writer of novels. And I, my dream was that I would write a novel that would be highly acclaimed and sell a lot of copies and I'd come to places like this. And that, so, you know, I went into journalism, then I went into movies and then, oh, well, yeah, I became a radio, a uh, current affairs radio producer and then I went into movies. I made some movies that were... A couple of them were okay and uh, some mini-series and lots of won awards and then I became a novelist and so I started to write I Am Pilgrim and uh, I was 200 pages in, uh, too far in to abandon it, not far enough to see the end when my brother, you know, so there was only the four of us, a very tight-knit family despite all the problems and uh, my brother arrived, he was 59 and uh, Tommy had cancer so I asked him how long the doctors said, and he said six months to a year. And um, they were right, quite separately. My father, who's quite elderly, was in hospital in Sydney, and uh, 
I had the unpleasant job of uh, talking to the doctors in the corridor and they were telling me that it was multiple organ failure and uh, he was in a lot of pain. Uh, so anyway, I uh, got the authorised them to turn the machines off, so I sat with Dad. Five months later, my mother died and uh, she died of a broken heart, I think. They'd been married 60-something years and uh, anyway... I was riding Pilgrim. I had four children of my own. My wife and I had had four children within the space of six years. I couldn't stop. I got up every morning and I dug ditch. That's what I did. And I guess to some extent the book is a, um, is a tribute, or at least my efforts were a tribute. When it was published, I got a phone call from the British publisher. They were the first ones to, to publish it. He said to me, it's going to be huge. It's going to be a really big selling book. And he talked to me about that, the reasons why, the response he was getting from the booksellers. And I said, oh, yeah. He said, you don't sound very happy. I said, no, I'm happy. I'm blessed. It's a childhood dream. And I never told him that the three people who shared that dream, who'd got off that boat in Australia, were all dead. There was nobody there. It gave me occasion... You know, death concentrates your mind enormously. It gave me occasion to spend a lot of time thinking about my own childhood. And I looked at my own kids and I could compare their childhood to what mine had been. And so I, um, I made a commitment to myself. I was going to be the best father there ever could be. I was going to give them every moment of time and mental health that I could. So I never missed a cricket match. I never missed a horse riding lesson. I never missed a performance of Aladdin. Oh my God, did I suffer 10,000 <laughs> performances of my second eldest child, Stephanie, who is quite an actress. And boy, did she mug it for the crowd. And I'm saying, for God's sake, Stephanie, shut up and just say the lines. <laughs> 10,000 performances, though. Yeah, I don't know. It was awful. And that, but, <laughs> but that's what I did. I committed myself to writing a novel, but my major focus was my children. I had an outstanding career as a journalist. I was the youngest foreign correspondent Australia had ever sent. I was 21 when they sent me to New York. I made some pretty, well, the current affairs program was this, one of the two highest rating current affairs programs in the country. I made some movies. I made some miniseries, which are very, very good, and one of them is extremely important to the history of Australia. And I've written two really good novels. I don't care. The thing I'm proud about is those kids and my commitment to them. And I don't give a shit what people say, how long it took. It took as long as it took. And I will never, ever apologize for that. Amen. Amen. There, there are so many life lessons, though, and I think that it can be applied to not just authors and creatives. Um, you got the work done in spite of these terrible hardships that you endured and you muscled through it. And what would be your advice for somebody who is isn't unfortunately enduring something like this or similar to it? I don't know. I, I don't think anything prepares you for it. It didn't prepare me. I would never have anticipated 
these events occurring in my life. I would never have anticipated where my life took me. But, you know, I've been blessed. I have been absolutely blessed. I had a dream as a child and I lived that dream, for better or for worse. And I went on the adventure and I never, ever complained about how unjust the world is or how unfair. It's unfair to everybody. We all have those mountains to climb. And there's not a person I've met who is, when they're being honest, won't tell you of the terrible things that they've had to confront. And, you know, uh, whether that's addiction or whether it's, uh, you know, being bullied at school or what, we can think of a million things. So I think there's a wonderful, wonderful saying from Native American, from a Native American shaman. I, I can't remember which tribe and I wish I could. But anyway, he went on the journey, the, that shamanic journey. And, you know, a lot of it's inducing a, a, a different reality, a different psychology of opening your mind to things. Anyway, he went on this journey and uh, he met the spirit of the universe and he came back. I asked him, what was he told? It was something very simple. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Life can be terrible and it can have all its challenges, but be not afraid. I've always remembered that. Be not afraid. Take risks. Live your life. And so I say to people that, you know, you just have to keep going. If I can tell you a story which is how I see myself as a storyteller. But during the Falklands War, you know, the Argentinians had gone out and invaded the Falklands. Why anybody would want the Falklands is beyond me, but they wanted them. So the British said, well, if you want them, we're not going to let you have them because we planted our flag there. So Newsweek had a wonderful cover. It showed the whole of the British fleet, or what was left of the British fleet, sailing out of Portsmouth Harbour, you know, where, you know, centuries gone past, the, the Royal Navy ruled the way. So off they go. And Newsweek's cover said the Empire strikes back. And so they go sailing down to the farthest reaches of the South Atlantic. 15, 20-foot seas. You're dead in two minutes from hypothermia if you hit the water. And they're going down there and they're going to take the Falklands back. Anyway, one of the boats, and I think it was the HMS Sheffield, but... Memory might not serve me well. Our friends, the French, had given or sold the Argentinians something called Exocet missiles, which were basically cruise missiles, but more primitive than that. Anyway, if you got hit, if your boat got hit, or ship got hit by by an Exocet, you knew it. Well, the Sheffield got hit midships and split in half, but most of the crew survived. But the front of the boat's gone down to the bottom of the Atlantic. But the, bow of the boat is still afloat but it's at an angle so all the surviving crew members have managed to get to the bow of the boat and that so they're standing there seas are you know mountainous and the cold is awful and there's injured men there were no women on, on board the boat at that during that period as far as I, I recall so they're standing there 
they've got one hope, that they'll get the helicopters in and winch them off. But this is a war. I mean, there's other missiles flying around. There's Tracer. There's, you know, everything you can imagine. Uh, and that, and they're under fire from, artil- from you know, the, the, the Argentinians had some warships. So it's, it's absolute hell. So they're standing there and they're watching the water come up and up and up that boat. And as soon as it gets to them, you're dead. So a man starts to sing. And he sings that song from the life of Brian, the Monty Python picture. Let's look on the bright side of death. And they all start singing this. The great thing is the helicopters came in and pulled them up. So I say to people, if you can show dignity in the face of terrible events, if you can show grace under pressure like those men, that's what I think you need. And that's what I try to do with, with whatever his name is in Pilgrim. I don't even know his name. <laughs> Scott Murdoch is one of his names, but I'm going to have to think up his real name for the, for the sequel. Um, but that's the same with, with Kane. His real name's Ridley, but he's known as Kane. I try to show characters who are in the most awful circumstances or fighting the the most terrible battles, but they don't lose their dignity. I like to think that in that corridor in a hospital in Sydney, I showed some grace under pressure. I like to think that in the face of terrible circumstances, I kept my dignity. And uh, if I can do that with the characters, and if anybody who is facing similar things can manage to do that, then I think that's courage, you know. I think that's worth celebrating. But what do I know? I'm just a writer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was beautiful. Um, I want to ask you about the book. I am a junkie when it comes to first sentences of books. Yeah. I love first sentences. And um, this doesn't spoil anything, anybody. This is the first sentence. I once went to kill a man. Is the first sentence. Now, Seeing as how you originally wrote a million eighty words, was this part of that original one million eighty or not? Yeah, it was always going to start that way. Nice. I always have to know the first sentence and the last sentence. Okay, so what about the? Okay, so the last sentence, obviously, this the exact same or same in concept or? No, no, exactly the same. Right, the last sentence of 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 Locust is "Riders on the Storm." That's all we are and can ever hope to be. Riders on the Storm. I didn't write it. Jim Morrison of the Doors did. But, you know, as, as Picasso said, you know, good artists, you know, borrow. Great artists steal. There great you go. Great artists steal. Now, I'm not a great artist, but I'll steal from anybody. So, um, so they were the first and last mm. words. I yeah. chose I once went to kill a man because I didn't want anybody to think that it was part of the Houston Knitting Club, uh, you know, <laughs> meeting. I thought, well, this is going to be, this is going to tell you that, hold on. Yeah. In, in Pilgrim, the, the first line is, there are places I'll remember all my life. That's a line from a Beatles song. And I liked the line because he goes on to say, to enumerate some of these places, and it's, you know, the theatre of death, the wrong side of of Detroit or wherever it was, and um, it tells you he's working in his memory and there are very memorable and hopefully impactive places. And, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, none of it's my work. I make it up from stuff I've read, you know. Um, but, yeah, they, they never change. 
much. I know the first line of, uh, of, of Pilgrim 2, and I've got a very, very good idea Interesting. of what the, what the end line is. The scene at the end, as it stands at the moment, is people standing uh, uh, on a river in Vietnam, lighting lanterns to carry the ashes of a young man out to sea. And it's very moving. What happens between the first line and that is, is questionable. <laughs> that is the difficult part. But, but I, I have faith. I have confidence. The muddy middle, I guess. Um, do, you, do you have a favorite first line of any book that you've read? Yeah. I, I have some favorite books. I don't always remember their first lines. Well, ask the person calling. Uh, yeah. What's their favorite first line? Uh, uh, um, <laughs> no, I, I mean, you know... Uh, I think more in terms of songs. Hmm. See, the, yeah, I mean, look, you know, if somebody would remind me, I mean, Catcher in the Rye, the first line, and that's pretty terrific. Um, I mean, you know, Hemingway, boy, I could write like Hemingway because it's so distinctive. I, 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 could, I could copy that. And uh, I entertain my kids sometimes by talking to them in Hemingwayese. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you know, there's, I mean, I love books. I, 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 love, I, I love authors. Um, but, you know, when you're writing something, this is just me. I was just on the, uh, doing a call with Jack Carr, you know, a very big selling author, former Navy SEAL, um, and that very successful. And, you know, he's got his own theories about writing and I've got my theories and I'm sure every person that's ever put pen to paper has their own theory. But this is my theory, that you, you get your characters into a certain position. Generally, somebody's about to die. But you get them into, you move them. You move them around the chessboard and you get them into a circumstance uh, or, or a situation which is hopefully morally difficult, very exciting, very threatening, and makes the reader want to turn the page. Okay, that's all really good, and that takes some degree of work and maybe on occasion some degree of talent. But there's something more than that. You've got to find the melody, the melody that plays through it. You've got to find the emotion. It's all very well to have all these people in this position and this is going to happen and that's going to happen. But somehow you've got to find the emotion of those people. What are they feeling? And you've got to transform it into words because, let's face it, it doesn't happen on the page. It happens in your head. It goes from my head to your head. And if there's a disconnect, if you don't understand the paragraph or you think that's a fake emotion or he's just BSing us here, you know, the whole thing's ruined. How do you find the melody? Well, you listen to music and you listen to me. There's my theory. You listen to the troubadours. For once, the Nobel Committee got it right. They gave the prize to the greatest poet of our generation. My son, my youngest son is called Dylan and so you know where my heart lies. Do I wish I could write a line like a hard rains are going to fall or where do you go to my blue-eyed son? Oh, my God. So many of them. Leonard Cohen wrote Suzanne. 
she'll take you by the hand and lead you down to the river. And then you've got Bruce Springsteen, you know. And I won't play the music because I never stop. So thank God for those sites that give you the lyrics. <laughs> and so I go on Google and I read the lyrics. You ever thought I, of just DMing one of these artists and saying, hey, I admire your work, Bruce. Would you, uh, would you like to come over for dinner and we can maybe write a, no. you can show me how to write a lyric? No, no, no. I, I mean, if he said to me, hey, Terry, I admire your, your work. Can I go have dinner? I'd say no. I'm Fair point. And that, no, I mean, it's, you know, I'm not on any social media. If you want to know me, it's in the book. It's, I don't, two sorts of people in the world. Those that want to be famous and those who want their work to be famous. So I'm in the latter group. The Kardashians can have the rest of it. Uh, <laughs> you know? So what I'm saying is that I, I, I go online and I read the lyrics and I chart my little course through all of this. The kids come in and say, what are you doing there, Dad? Just surf the web, don't you? I say, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm just kicking back, you know. And that, uh, But, yes, so it's a... Um, it's a journey for me, and if I do it right, it's a journey for everybody else. All right, everybody, we're going to wrap up the interview and get some books signed. Oh, okay. All right, everybody, yeah, please give it up for, for Terry Hayes. Yes. All right. All right.